listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Kevin Kelly, who has a variety of interesting pursuits. He is the senior maverick for Wired, which he helped co-found 28 years ago. He's the author of several books on technological evolution, like What Technology Wants. And he's also an excellent photographer and is kickstarting this massive photo book, Vanishing Asia. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Yeah, I think... Um, those two big topics are kind of what we're going to get dive into today, the vanishing Asia on one side and then the kind of what technology wants and technological evolution on the other side. Uh, so let's start with vanishing Asia. And just for the listeners so they know, it's this massive, amazing book um, on Kickstarter now. Um, it's, you know, 50 years of, of images that Kevin's taken, 9,000 images in the book. Um, and he has this Kickstarter that's already raised, you know, like 400,000 bucks, but it's like your way to kind of get like a pre-order of the book in this kind of amazing way. So I just kind of wanted to give that for um, the listeners. I'll also drop a link in the show notes. And so Kevin, tell us like, this is a, <laughs> this is a huge project. You know, I've, I've made a couple of these books myself, but much smaller in scope. Tell us like why, what kind of, what was your impetus to make and, and take on this huge project? So um, I wound up going to Asia instead of going to college um, in the early 70s. I arrived in Hong Kong, Taiwan around 1972, completely clueless about anything about Asia. I basically had not been out of New England, had ever eaten Chinese food, held chopsticks, you know, been in a Chinese oriental restaurant of any sort. It was just um, a complete different planet for me. And I was sort of blown away and educated in a large degree by my travels there. So it became a large part of my life. And I'd gone with this idea <clears throat> that I was going to be a photographer there because in high school, I kind of learned photography, which at that time meant you were doing the chemistry, it meant that you were developing the film yourselves and you were printing in the dark room with chemicals and you had to know optics. And it was my kind of it was my interest in both being art artist and, and a scientist and that was, photography was this wonderful conversion, <coughs> excuse me, but I had no idea that, um, uh, or, or that I didn't originally intend to kind of be like a, a journalistic or anthropological 
type of photography or the kind of photography that National Geographic does. But once I got there, uh, that's what my photography turned into was there was this amazing culture and so many things that were interesting. And it was evident from almost the first moment that I was there that it was rapidly changing and that it was going. And um, because I could see um, within my own eyes the speed at which there would be a rice paddy one day and a month later there would be a factory and um, it was very clear that these things weren't long for the world, but I was originally documenting them just because they were beautiful, just because they were different, just because they were other. And um, uh, I sort of gravitated fairly quickly in a couple of years um, to kind of trying to find these places where there was some intact traditional culture and, you know, in my early, in the first trip, I had no intentions of ever going back. It was just kind of, I was going there to visit a friend who was studying Chinese in Taiwan, who could show me around. Uh, it took me so long to earn enough money to just buy a plane ticket there that by the time I arrived, he was going to only give me there for a week. So he left me there. Um, and I started to hitchhike around Taiwan where there was not even any roads on the, the, the eastern part of the country. It was just dirt roads, no paved roads, rather. And so um, one of the things I discovered was that there were all these other nearby countries that one could go visit. And then it became kind of an addiction where you're in one place and there's always something on the other side of the mountain or you know down the road um, that nobody has seen. And, and again, when I was traveling in the early 70s, the the lack of information is sort of would be unbelievable, and it's, nobody would believe how how ignorant we were. Uh, you know, and I went to the Philippines originally. I had no map. There was no guidebook. There was no information. I literally had nothing. There was nothing for a tourist to go, and uh, no names, no again, no map. And other places of the world, I was in like northern Afghanistan. Later on. A few years later, there was again. There was I had a rough Bartholomew, Bartholomew map of the country with kind of the big cities in, and um, I literally would you know take a bus somewhere and have no idea what was at the end of the road. Uh, it could be it could have been another city, it could have been a town, could have been desert you know it could have been completely interesting or completely boring <laughs> uh it was you just never knew yeah um so anyway the the answer is is that i set off without really much expectation and i did not set out to make a book but that idea came later on um, as i kept returning and i had this compulsion to kind of document it and um there were so many things again that I would hear about from people and they were writing in notebooks. If you're staying in a hotel, you would scribble in, Oh, I just came from you know Northern Thailand and you should really, I really enjoyed this town. And that was sort of the, the little kind of subterranean information network. And that was sort of propelling. And then um, uh, later on uh, I had a family to travel as much, but later on I came back uh, for business travel. I came back to Asia because Asia was booming. It was this going to be Japan and Korea and China was going to be the next 
future, and it was and is, but um, I had an opportunity to come for business, so I'd always add an additional personal travel and head out to the boondocks, head out to the remote parts in China, the little tiny villages or, you know, India. And um, that was when I got the idea of, well, oh, you know, this needs to, I need to share this. Because in the beginning, there was no way to share uh, your images. Yeah. There was no Instagram. There was no social media. Even the blog was, Flickr came along pretty late, but um, it was still possible. But for me, I grew up in a kind of a magazine family. I was, I love magazines and books. For me, the form was a book. And that was what kind of coalesced my mind was, I'm going to share this book and I have a still image and a book work together very, very well. Just like moving images works really great on the screen. And um, I began to imagine this book that would have this other world, this trip, this time machine to a, um, you know, a, a place far, far away long ago. And um, that's what I started to work towards was making a book to share this amazing stuff that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I love, well, thank you for that. Telling us that, that the journey there, I mean, it's a cool <laughs> that you, you went to Asia for college, you know, it's just like, I'm going to go see my friends. Yes. And before long, you're just like traveling around. And, and I know for me, just thinking about, you know, the impact on my own life and probably obviously for you on your life, it's like for me, when I went to, I hadn't been outside of the United States when I went to Nepal and then India and then China mm -hmm. for the first time. And it yeah. was like, it's just a big, wow. you're like, whoa, this is, the world's <laughs> out there, you know? And, and and for me, that was crazy, but I'd already seen some things on the internet. And so for you, it was like, you know, double bonus crazy. Um, and, and do you think that for you, like, I'm thinking about how this book connects to your, and your kind of journey with it connects to your kind of, you know, techno futurist work. Like how has that shaped your lens on the world as you went off and, and did things like Wired or wrote, wrote books and things sure. like that? It's a really great question, and um, the answer, kind of in retrospect, was that it was profound. Um, there, there were two huge lessons that I took from that that are kind of foundational for me. One is the fact that I spent a large portion of my young adult life living in areas that had very little technology. So I had the opportunity to kind of go back in time. Most of that time was served in the medieval ages some of it might have been like in the 1800s and occasionally if you get into the tribal areas it's way back and i always kind of judged the remoteness by the iron factor it was how much iron was present as you know in nepal say going into the hills everything has to be carried in and ported in it gets very very expensive and um and again, before there was easy access to roads, um, the further away you were, the less iron there was, and more people did things with wood, fiber, earth, um, and the native materials. And so um, uh, I spent a lot of time in some of the places that had very little technology of any sort. Yeah. And... You know, there are several lessons from that. One is that people could be content and find happiness, but the major, it wasn't that they were unhappy per se. It was that they didn't have choices. The son was going to do exactly what the father did. 
the daughter was going to do exactly what the mother did. And both of those were a choice of one. They're going to be a farmer and a mother. And that was it. Hidden in among all those people were probably a Beethoven and a Einstein. And their genius is lost to us. And so um, I began to see, I began to see that. I began to see what technology brings to us, the, the gift that it has, and the costs. It's very clear that those costs. There's something about growing up in a beautiful hillside village in Nepal where you're eating organic food. Uh, you, you have a, a beautiful scene. You have very strong families and support in the community, and you know who you are. There, There's a lot to be said for that, but um, you're gonna. If you're young, you're gonna take a one-way ticket out of there. You're gonna go to. You're gonna go into some of the greedy parts of Kathmandu and yeah. or Delhi, and um, where things are kind of rough. But you have the possibility of being a web designer, yeah. or of um, you know developing a new kind of ecotourism or something different that might be more suited to your gifts. So I saw that. And the second thing that I saw was the future. I saw I saw how Asia was rapidly bootstrapping itself out of ancient ways and creating a completely new urban cosmopolitan global culture. It was um, some of those and some of the cities that they were building were were far more advanced than ours uh, over time. And I kept returning to those. And, and so I, I got this sense of the speed at which it was um, moving into the future and the degree to which it was probably going to be our future um, in, in the sense that I believe that uh, just by the sheer numbers of you know India and China being 3 billion, just those two countries alone. Yeah compared to the 350 million in the U.S. is like 10 times. So, so just mathematically, what happens in the U.S. is increasingly not going to be the important, most important thing happening. So I, I, I saw and felt that. And, and that were the two big lessons I got yeah, from Asia. I love that. I think that the first one, I, iron factor is a good way to think about it. And it's like, and you can just go to different places. And while, you know, you kind of have a more nuanced view on that than maybe other travelers where you other folks just see ah this is rural and they see it all as rural but you can see ah this is kind of like 1800s rural this is like medieval (laughs) rural this is tribal rural you know and so you can kind of go further further back in time yeah 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 and i think that the what you're talking about with the choices reminds me a lot of um in what technology wants how you talk about yeah just how technology and the technium kind of sucks us towards it and it kind of forces us to have no more choices you know it's like you must use technology we're on you know a phone call right now or whatever and it provides you with so many choices and so there's like weird kind of paradox there um yeah you can have this going to be paralyzed by so many choices they they, they call it the tyranny or the paradox of a choice where they have shown actually in studies where if you go to a supermarket and there's 120 different varieties of mustard, you'll buy less mustard than if there are only 10 varieties for sale. Um, so yes, there, 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 again, there is a cost to that abundance that I don't want to slight. Um, but I think there's a net gain from it as well. 100%. Yeah. And I think your other point there of the future is something that is just hard to, 
it, it, we can just it's so important to just say it over and over again that it's like when you think about the world and you think about how many folks are in both Europe but also you know the United States it is just you know uh, I love the Hans Rosling book Factfulness and you have like um, one billion people live in North and South America one billion live in Europe one billion live in Africa and then five billion live in um, Asia and so that's just so mm-hmm. much more and then over the next from now to twenty one hundred um, it'll go from one 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 five to one one four five so we're essentially getting three billion more people all in Africa and it's just it's tough for us to kind of um, to, to how to think about that and those things. But yeah, it's like, we're going to become less and less relevant in the global stage, which is all good in the hood or, or it's just, it is what's happening, you know? Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, we want to remain, uh, you know, good neighbors. We want to be um, good sports about, um, about this dethronement yeah. that's happening right now. We're, we're, we're basically, um, we, I'm talking about as Americans, Americans, Americans being dethroned from that kind of soul throne it was on for a long time. And that's painful. That's going to hurt. There is no way that psychologically that's not um, a, a blow. And so um, what we don't want to do is react in fear or anger. Um, and, um, you know, I think, by the way, that one of the, better remedies for that is travel. Uh, once we get past the, the COVID, um, go and confront the otherness in other places and you'll be inspired and um, hopefully um, educated in terms of what's really happening on the planet. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that it is, I think travel can be such an important and even something there's the, there's the more expensive quote unquote, um, you know, uh, plane based travel or, or, or other based travel. But there's even, I really like what you said. And, and from the images that I've seen of your book, the idea of your book being kind of a time machine and also a spatial, a geospatial uh, machine where yeah. you can just kind of transport yourself, get into one of these books with these thousands of images and just spend an afternoon or whatever, just kind of going there, you know, and, and feeling that and yeah, really yeah, being yeah. there for a bit. I think that, yeah, that holds true for me. You know, um, this is a little bit kind of fast forwarding into some of the other stuff that I've written about, um, including um, virtual reality, augmented reality. But one of the things that happens with that is that uh, I I think that the um, next big thing after smartphones is smart glasses, where you put a pair of glasses on and you can normally see through them. They're, they're clear, but you can uh, detect or see a layer of a, a digital world of the same world, the digital version. Um, and, and, and VR is just where you just black out. You just black out the um, outside world with the same glasses and you have VR. And um, what's interesting about um, those is that um, uh, when you are experiencing the um, inside of these worlds, it, it, that's what it is. It's an experience. It's no longer, when you take the glasses off, you don't talk about what you saw. You talk about what you experienced. Um, because there's something about the volumetric three-dimensional immersion that's very different from seeing a flat screen where you actually, it, it, it plays a trick on your brain in the same kind of trick that moving a series of moving images convinces us there's or no, a series of still images on a screen convinces us that there's movement. Well, um, and, and you're completely persuaded that the rocket moved across the screen when there was no movement. Um, in the same way uh, in this new technology, the 3d volumetric 
convinces us that we had an experience, that, that we were immersed. And the point of this is that we're moving to an internet of experiences. We're moving to a, a, a place where experiences become the currency. And um, at, when VR and AR gets even better, um, we'll be able to have some of the experiences of otherness that travel often brought. Um, right now, even on YouTube, there are people who do um, walking tours where they just will put on like a GoPro and they'll walk through the back alleyways of New Delhi, just recording exactly what they see. No narration, no thing. They're just walking through the back alleys at the pace of their walking, and that's it. And it's unbelievably how powerful that is. Um, and now imagine if you do it in three, 3D volume in real time, it is. It, it can be extremely moving, and so um, and so you're right. It, 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 the stuff that we're talking about is not necessary that you get in a plane and move your flesh five thousand miles to a different place. You you will be able to do and confront this in other ways. Yeah, increasingly more so. Yeah, I think and let's kind of keep pulling that thread on these kind of futurist things. I think that there's a uh, you know for me and this kind of transitioning to the second part of our conversation. Um, I'm currently writing a book right now called What Information Wants. And as I've been doing the research around it for, you know, technological and biological evolution, a couple of friends have pointed to me and been like, hey, man, you got to read more Kevin Kelly. Uh, and so I, I mm-hmm. read What Technology Wants, even though I had only read Out of Control back in the day. And it's been it's been good. It's I think I, you really have this very kind of macro meta perspective on biological and technological evolution. Um, and so I want to kind of pull a couple of threads there. The first one is... I don't know, thinking about like the inevitability of technology and, uh, or sorry, the inevitability of evolution more generally, um, both in biological evolution and technological mm-hmm. evolution. And on kind of the biological side, you have stuff like eyes or wings or whatever being inevitable. It's like, we got animals, they need to, eyes seem like a smart thing to have. And so we've developed eyes uh, independently across um, many different species. How do you think about technological evolution and the inevitabilities there and like, you know, what are the kind of inevitable things that will happen within the next century or so? Yeah. So, so I just want to kind of paint a few very broad strokes for the benefit of listeners. Great. First yep. of all, the, the, the argument that I'm making, what technology wants and talking about um, directions in, evolu- in, in technological evolution, I say, basically, I, I conclude that um, the directions of technological progress are an extension of the same forces and directions in uh, biological evolution. But I have to say the fact that the, the, um, the claim that evolution has any directions at all is controversial. Okay. So, 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 um, some very diehard Darwinians would say that there ain't any, directions in evolution at all and that they're all things that we project um so 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 it's a minority view though there are there, there are some very good reputable bio evolutionary biologists who recognize that there are some uh directions in evolution but i have to say that it's still a controversial stance let me pause and for I, a second on that i think 
think that yeah, that's yeah. crazy. I mean, I think that sure. and I'm coming from an outsider view and, and you obviously, agree, yeah. I think you agree with me on this, but like, like I'm not a biologist, but it just seems like if we have a uh, repeatable information substrate that is trying out things, you know, like a DNA perspective, it's going to find something like photosynthesis or uh, mitochondria or, you know, or, or eyes right, or right. whatever. So I don't, I think, I think that's kind of a funny, I think it's kind of a crazy claim. Yeah. Right. Well, the, 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 there's several things about that. One is, even though we all intuit it, you still want to be able to prove yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, secondly, um, the other question is, well, where's the mechanism? Where, where, what layer, where is that direction being conveyed or um, controlled? And that's a very hard thing to ask or an answer, I should rather say. And so, um, so, so f- f- from my viewpoint is that the, 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 the constraints are buried in the very nature of the physical world and chemistry and biology. And, um, and the other thing that I would add just as clarification is that the, the claim that I would make about these directions, which are inevitable, meaning that they're baked in, is that they're only baked in at a high level. Meaning that um, it's the the equivalent uh, image I would use is um, if you have imagined raindrops falling down into a, a valley, uh, um, the direction of any raindrop is pretty clear. It's like downward into the river. But the actual path of a specific raindrop is completely stochastic. You can't predict where the individual uh, path is going to be. And in fact, it's very, very unpredictable, but we do know the direction, which is down. And so um, in the same way, we can say, well, if you have a, another planet with the same kind of gravity and maybe atmosphere that the Earth has, you're going to have quadrupeds. You're going to have vehicles or organisms that have four legs because that is inherently a very physically stable, um, doable pattern. So a, a giraffe may be completely unpredictable and never to be seen again, but quadrupeds are almost a certainty. Yeah. So, so the question and my looking at technology is to kind of say, well, what's what's a zebra and what's a quadruped, right? And so, um, and so I think at the systems level, you can talk about things being inevitable, but in terms of the species specific level. This entirely unpredictable. So I would say, you know, whether, um, you know, IBM or Apple succeeds, that's a species and it's unpredictable. But whether AI is going to succeed, that's inevitable. Because we know from biology that making minds is something that has happened over and over and over again. And um, it's a kind of a learning, et cetera. There's, there's a whole bunch of reasons to see that as a systems inevitability. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, and A, thank you for that context for listeners where it's like, you know, it is a, and this is the question of like teleology or whatever within right. um, like, oh, do the genes actually want something? Well, they kind of like have this emergent desire where the ones who don't want to replicate get killed or whatever so then long term the ones that want to mm-hmm. replicate just kind of exist um right. and then kind of do and, and, and i do think just another meta note for our listeners it's like um and i think kevin and I are trying to be um 
I don't know, careful with, you know, biological versus technological metaphors and whether there's like direct mappings or whether there's, you know, the mappings are not as exact. Um, I think that, and I like your, your version of, you know, the, the raindrops falling down, like we know they're going to go down. Uh, and my version of that might be like, we know that both biological and technological evolution is going to want to kind of capture energy. Um, and so something like the mm-hmm. agricultural uh, or like farming, um, you know, convergently evolved or independently evolved um, many different times within human species or something like brains, as you say, it's like, okay, we're going to, the we will want something like brains. Are there other things in your mind that come to your mind for like what kinds of inevitabilities might exist? Well, um, yeah, I mean, there is, there, there is, um, in, in my book, what technology wants, I kind of make a list of some of the things I think are the general directions. And one of them is a movement from general things to specialized things. Mm -hmm. We see that in, in life where you start with a kind of a general purpose uh, cell, and then you have more and more specialized cells and, I think humans have 50 or I don't remember exactly 80 different specialized cells in our bodies. And technology goes through the same thing where we make a general purpose camera, then we make a high speed camera, then we make an infrared camera, then we make a high speed infrared underwater <laughs> camera, you know. So uh, it, it's it's the same kind of thing of movement from the general to the specific, which is also, a, you know, a, 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 in some ways, what we hope our own lives um, replicate, mm-hmm. that we go from the kind of a general purpose baby to a um, to a very, very specific role and our very, very specific distinctive combination of talents and what we can do. And so you want to become more specific over time. And so um, uh, I think... Um, that movement from the general to the specific. The other one is a movement from um, the simple to the complex, which was the obvious one. And then there's a movement from um, uh, dependency just on yourself to increasing mutualism, yeah. where we're kind of codependent, where we where we form a system where more and more of life is supported by other life and not just the inner world where um, you have co-evolution of multiple species and where we become more social. And I would say that in the future, our technology would become ever more social. Now there, and there, and you mentioned energy, there's also a movement to energy density. Um, and people who, who physicists, if they were to look at the, uh, ab- the uh, technology in the abstract, would say, you know, there's um, a certain amount of ergs, calories so to speak that flow through a certain amount of mass in a certain amount of time and that over in evolution galactic evolution that has been increasing and in life in in even though we operate at a kind of a lower temperature the amount of energy that goes through a particular um, mass in a particular time is actually greater than the sun yeah Okay, and and the reason why the sun is just that it's so heavy so, yeah, exactly. that 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 um you know it, it can take a big amount of energy, but but actually there is more in the density going through the life. And here is the here's what the big surprise is that your laptop has even a higher density than life. Um, and you know there's some kind of jokes about you know they're the the basically. In some ways, as we refine our laptops, the amount of energy, they're like thermonuclear bombs 
in the sense of the amount of energy per density that they have, and you're trying to control that. Um, and so if we imagine supercomputers in the future, they're going to be incredibly dangerous in a certain sense because in order to process faster, they're going to have to keep moving more energy through the same density faster, which is, you know, sketchy, which is going to be the challenge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, so I would say that's another movement yeah. um, over time. Yeah. I love, I love both those. I want to highlight two of them for the listeners. It's like one is that codependency one is so um, crucial because it's like, you know, uh, the movement from, you know, DNA, like forming onto an actual chromosome, you know, or like, you know, multicellular organisms where the cells themselves all combine to make sure that the germline continues or, you know, societies where it's like for you and I, we're kind of codependent in this society. It's like, if I went out alone, I would kind of be screwed. You know, I might not be able to replicate, but like being part of a bigger thing. So I think that one's fascinating. And the other one from the general to specific, yeah, it's a bunch of like, it's like niche construction where you have a bunch of niches, either biological or technological mm-hmm. or social niches that are being created. Um, and then things need to fill those niches. And I think that, um, yeah, it's very aligned with uh, some of the folks around, you know, the passion economy or whatever on the internet where you're trying to kind of differentiate, differentiate yourself yeah. on Twitter. You know, you're like, who am I? What niche do I, uh, do I fill? So I think that's interesting. Do you think, by the way, um, and, you know, talking about metaphors in your book, uh, use you know the technium as a metaphor and i'm thinking about you know what kinds of different metaphors one can use and there's the, you know the like the noosphere and you know the geosphere the biosphere tell me about like why you think or why you use the technium instead of you know these other metaphors like the global brain or something like that well i do use another metaphor called holos mm-hmm. um and so so let me define so i think there is a difference between the technium and holos so I define um, the technium as the system of all everything that's made by a mind, any kind of a mind, um, which we kind of in the vernacular words we call technology. But technology also means a very specific kind of technology. So I use the general term of the technium to mean the system of all technology because it is a system in the sense that it takes a saw to make a hammer handle and takes the hammer to make a saw. You have this codependency today, you know, to make a a computer takes thousands of different technologies, which also take computers to run. And so we have a system in which all the technological things that we're surrounded by are codependent on each other. That system of all the technologies I call the technium. Okay, and it's um, it's anything that minds create or make, versus say the natural world, and the, the, and so the natural world, the system on this planet is called Gaia, which which is this idea of all the living systems, living, and inert. Okay, so so this is where we get into kind of you know atmosphere regulation. Um, the fact that the, there is a regulation of the planet and the oxygen, um, so you have a coevolution of the biological natural world and the physical world. And what people don't realize is the degree to which life has influenced the geology of this planet. Okay, life, the fact that we had so much life, actually helped make continental drift actually helped make the tectonic plates it actually is instrumental in 
basically the form of the mountains that we see. If there wasn't life on this planet, we would not have the same terrain that we have. And as we go forward, um, you know, we're now altering the atmosphere and the chemistry, which will, in the long term, in geological ages, have some impact. So that is called Gaia. That's the second system of um, the, the, the physical living planet as it self-regulates and maintains the oxygen. So the thing about our atmosphere is that you could identify that there was life on this planet from a billion miles away once you identified our atmosphere mm-hmm. because it has elevated levels of oxygen, which are not natural. They normally would just burn up whatever iron was on the planet and rust it. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we maintain levels of it is out of disequilibrium, which means that there's a life, there's an energy source, a kind of what I call exotropic entity. Yeah that goes against the general entropy, which would happen um, with oxygen and iron, it would turn into rust. That's entropy. But we don't have that. And so you could say, well, there's life on that planet. Anyway, that's Gaia. Now, I think um, as we take the Tectium and Gaia and all the humans have, we are making a new hole, and I call that Holos. Holos is the union of, or this new system of all the machines on this planet, all the minds on this planet, and all the natural uh, life on this planet forms a new entity that is a whole system. And that's the holos. Okay? And so um, we are just kind of getting our minds wrapped around where that goes and how that works. And again, some of the things I was just talking about, well, the technium is inner is interfacing or influencing the Gaia is, is evidence of the holos. Yeah. Yeah. I love, um, and, and, and I like your definition of, of technium, uh, you're just kind of going back off the stack there first on the yeah. technium side. It's like, yeah, the, the made by a mind thing, I think is a pretty cor- relatively correct definition for that which is like yeah there are things that are made by the information in dna and in genes and that's like the biosphere or whatever and then there are things that are made by minds aka meme you know interactions um and that those are are something like the technium and then right mm-hmm. so i would include anything that ais would make and i would also include beaver dams mm-hmm. and um bird nests yeah interesting all the kind of uh, extended phenotype kind of things Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think I might. Uh, I, I think that that's one one way to view it. I might. I might uh, slightly. Or I, I feel like. Or let, let me push back on on that for a second. Um, I think that there's a. Or I don't know. How do you think about you know when I was reading your book um, and I was you know thinking about you know the information layer and you have you know the genes and the genes create the tree of life and then you have this new weird thing with humans where we can have we have language and language. Uh, can create this like tree of ideas, um, you know, through and uh, through something like memes, yeah. these replicating entities. How do you think about? I don't know. I, I was kind of surprised that that what technology wants didn't have that much on memes, or at least not that I remember. Mm-hmm. How do you think about how memes play a role here? Um, yeah, with something like the technium or, or kind of this tree of ideas and and, and the, like humans. Yeah, you know, Susan Blackmore has really kind of explored memes i i I think they're present um you know i didn't spend much time about the selfish gene either i i I think it there it's true 
maybe it's useful, but I, I, um, I, I don't know what they're, what is, uh, predicting or how, how useful in terms of its predictions are. So I would say I honor and acknowledge it. I think it's they're actually real in a sense and maybe they're useful to someone thinking about it, but um I didn't I didn't really go very much with them because they didn't weren't that useful to me. Yeah. Um I think the issues of information which you are kind of trying to investigate are is very crucial. And there's a lot to say about the information layer that hasn't been said either by me or others. Um, and then there's many, you know, directions to go on it. One is there, you know, at the cosmic level, I think there's definitely um, a movement from um, most of the universe being um, originally um, kind of like being energy. And then, yeah. um, you know, well, I, there, there, we know that there's an equivalency between matter, energy, and information. They're actually three facets of the same thing. Okay? And that doesn't seem to make sense to us. That information part of it is the most unknown. Where even though we have dark matter and dark energy, meaning that 95% of the universe, we have no idea what it is, it's possible that it may be connected to information. Okay? But we don't have very good ideas about it, how those are. But we do know that there is an equivalency um, between them. And so um, the information is the kind of the newest part, and we have lots of questions about it. Is it conserved totally throughout the universe? You know, can you destroy information in any way? Um, uh, you know, what's the relationship between information and extropy? in the whole universe when you have the not just a local area so so to begin with um i think it's a very very fruitful area but but also we really don't know uh very much about it um and secondly i think that in the goodness of time we're going to reinterpret all of physics that we know in terms of information theory that's my hunch um and and it'll be a big undertaking to kind of understand that because um uh but it would be very exciting when we do to kind of unify it. so for me the great unification theory is not so much about gravity waves and the quantum world it's actually where does information fit into that because if we can unify that then we have a i think a much more powerful theory and i just want to emphasize how far we are from having any notion about how that's done yeah i mean it's crazy to think that just information as an idea um only really came about in you know the 40s 50s you know as shannon and right. folks were looking at genes and looking at computers and trying to do air correction and being like hey there's like a right, similar right. thing here um and now we kind right, of take right. it for granted or you and i and other folks i guess take it for granted these days it's like oh man like you can think in terms of bits you know like all of us much of society can think in terms of bits now right. that's crazy um which is right. very exciting there's a very famous physicist um wheeler who made the statement that it's are bits it's anything that's an it is actually a bit and that's my basic premise it's our bits um how you know how they're reconciled and what's the relationship we we, we don't know but I know like some of the current quantum theories, they kind of take a relational idea. Um, and I suspect that's something inherent information is that it's a relational thing. 
Um, and so, um, I, you know, for me, when I kind of look forward into the future of physics, that's what I would see. That's what I expect to see, I should say, is that it being kind of recast in, in especially the quantum weirdness stuff in terms of information. Yeah. Um, but, 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 you know, again, I have to emphasize, like, if you ask someone, physicists or others, to make a definition of information. So many different ones. Yeah, it just it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know. it's a funny. And I just want to highlight one other thing before we start to get into rap mode here, which is the um, I love what you said. I mean, the I agree with your um, formation of the holos in terms of like you know the uh, and I sometimes I call it like nature 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. We have you know biological world, you know nature and earth, and then there's the humans and the mm-hmm. minds, and then there's nature 3.0, this new AI thing with machines or whatever. And so it's like we have these three sets of things that are going to be co-evolving with each other going forward, and how can we make sure that they co-evolve and kind of a delightful beautiful way i think that's interesting um right yeah so so we're trying to manage the evolution of the holos is the way i would put it and i would say again that if you visited other planets particularly any advanced civilization on their planet they would have their own holos yep. um, if they're doing it well and where they are integrated it's the integration of the all the minds on the planet all the things made from minds and all the natural original material and there's going to be they're going to interact somehow or other but the degree to which you can manage it and even direct it that's what the holos is about 100 percent, yeah and, and it, that gets into the complexities of emergent systems and making sure that you have nice sure. small rules that kind of result in, in positive emergent behavior um sure i have one final question here which is too quick overrated and underrated uh where i'm just going to ask you an overrated and underrated thing do you think that dslrs are overrated or underrated um they're underrated well dsl uh, um okay let me back up if you mean by a dslr you mean like literally like a single lens reflex kind of a camera i would say they're overrated if you just mean digital cameras i i would say they're underrated so um, and of course i would include in that like your phone so if if you're talking about, so so i don't think cameras are standalone things with lenses and mirrors that go up and down or or any we're going to become they're going to be like i would say dinosaurs yeah. or <laughs> reptiles they're going to be around but they're going to have a very very specialized um, thing uh everything is going towards digital so if that's what you mean, I would say they're overrated. Yeah, that, I was kind of thinking like, do you use a, like a, one of those single camera DSLRs, or are you, are you know, are you more of a the hey, use whatever's in your phone kind of a thing? Um, well, I I use a Lumix, which is a fixed lens, no mirror, and it's not, not actually classified as a DSLR, but it is it looks like a camera, mm. and, and it's and so. Um, uh, someone would point to this and that's an old fashioned camera, but it's actually not a DSLR. <laughs> I think the new fashion cameras are going to be on your phone. And this is something that I've been talking about for a long time. It's flat lenses where you have an insect lens. You'd have, you'd have maybe hundreds of lenses on your phone, maybe different parts of your phone compiling and doing depth perception and all kinds of things. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I think the future of the phone is the future of the camera. Yeah, I love that. And I think it reminds me, my, one of my housemates has a, one of these newfangled Google Pixel whatever phones. And it's got like, the back of it looks like an insect eye. It's got like 10 different lenses yeah, yeah. on it. It's like, it's a lot yeah, of Yeah, we're lenses. going to keep going on that. Yeah, um, yeah you, can't, you can't have too many of you them. You can't have too many, exactly. Um, well, I think we're out of time today. But Kevin, thank you so much again for coming on. I think, A, for the listeners, definitely check out, I'll, I'll put, put it in the show note leaks, but Kickstarter, Vanishing Asia, if you just Google that. Uh, you'll be able to find it. It's a really amazing, again, 9,000 images, a really kind of um, massive, amazing piece of work. So it's, it's cool to just go there and check it out. And then also check out, if you're interested in this you know, technological and biological evolution stuff, um, definitely check out some of Kevin's talks or books um, on the internet about you know what technology wants or things like that. Um, Kevin, anything else to say for our listeners? Any place that they can you want to point them towards? Yeah. Um- yeah, the, the book is a thousand pages. It was too big to fit on my lap, on my prototype, so I divided it into three very big, too big books. Uh, weighs 27 pounds. You need to have room on your shelf for sure. Um, but the other thing that I do and have been done for five years is I have a weekly newsletter called Recommendo, where I recommend with Mark Feinfelder, my partner, we recommend six really cool things of all types every week, free newsletter called Recommendo. So that's my other love. Um, And it's really been a joy combining my two passions of technology and Asia and photography into one podcast. So thank you, Reese. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, yeah, excited for us to connect. And um, listeners, definitely check out the stuff on the interwebs. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Okay. Bye. Bye.